0: This is the SFF Audio Podcast. This week's podcast is a recording of 8 o'clock in the morning by Ray Nelson. It was recorded for us by Greg Marguerite. Join Greg and me after the story for a conversation with Ray Nelson himself.
1: SFF Audio presents... 8 O'Clock in the Morning by Ray Nelson, read by Greg Marguerite. At the end of the show, the hypnotist told his subjects, Awake! Something unusual happened. One of the subjects awoke all the way. This had never happened before. His name was George Nada, and he blinked out at the sea of faces in the theater, at first unaware of anything out of the ordinary. Then he noticed, spotted here and there in the crowd, the non-human faces, the faces of the fascinators. They had been there all along, of course, but only George was really awake, so only George recognized them for what they were. He understood everything in a flash, including the fact that if he were to give any outward sign, the fascinators would instantly command him to return to his former state, and he would obey. He left the theater, pushing out into the neon night, carefully avoiding any indication that he saw the green reptilian flesh or the multiple yellow eyes of the rulers of Earth. One of them asked him, "'Got a light, buddy?' George gave him a light, then moved on. At intervals along the street, George saw the posters hanging with photographs of the fascinator's multiple eyes and various commands printed under them, such as, "'Work eight hours,' "'Play eight hours,' sleep eight hours, and marry and reproduce. A TV set in the window of a store caught George's eye, but he looked away in the nick of time. When he didn't look at the fascinator in the screen, he could resist the command, stay tuned to this station. George lived alone in a little sleeping room, and as soon as he got home, the first thing he did was to disconnect the TV set. In other rooms, he could hear the TV sets of his neighbors, though. Most of the time the voices were human, but now and then he heard the arrogant, strangely birdlike croaks of the aliens. ''Obey the government,'' said one croak. ''We are the government,'' said another. ''We are your friends. You'd do anything for a friend, wouldn't you?'' ''Obey. Work.'' Suddenly the phone rang. George picked it up. It was one of the fascinators. ''Hello?'' It squawked. This is your control, Chief of Police Robinson. You are an old man, George Nada. Tomorrow morning at eight o'clock your heart will stop. Please repeat. I am an old man, said George. Tomorrow morning at eight o'clock my heart will stop. The control hung up. No, it won't, whispered George. He wondered why they wanted him dead. Did they suspect that he was awake? Probably. Someone might have spotted him, noticed that he didn't respond the way the others did. If George were alive at one minute after eight tomorrow morning, then he would be sure. No use waiting here for the end, he thought. He went out again. The posters, the TV, the occasional commands from passing aliens did not seem to have absolute power over him, though he still felt strongly tempted to obey, to see things the way his masters wanted him to see them. He passed an alley and stopped. One of the aliens was alone there, leaning against the wall. George walked up to him. Move on, grunted the thing, focusing his deadly eyes on George. George felt his grasp on awareness waver. For a moment the reptilian head dissolved into the face of a lovable old drunk. Of course the drunk would be lovable. George picked up a brick and smashed it down on the old drunk's head with all his strength. For a moment the image blurred, then the blue-green blood oozed out of the face and the lizard fell, twitching and writhing. After a moment it was dead. George dragged the body into the shadows and searched it. There was a tiny radio in its pocket and a curiously shaped knife and fork in another. The tiny radio said something in an incomprehensible language. George put it down beside the body, but kept the eating utensils. I can't possibly escape, thought George. Why fight them? But maybe he could. What if he could awaken others? That might be worth a try. He walked twelve blocks to the apartment of his girlfriend, Lil, and knocked on her door. She came to the door in her bathrobe. I want you to wake up, he said. I'm awake, she said. Come on in. He went in. The TV was playing. He turned it off. No, he said, I mean really wake up. She looked at him without comprehension, so he snapped his fingers and shouted, Wake up! The master's command that you wake up! Are you off your rocker, George? she asked suspiciously. You sure are acting funny. He slapped her face. Cut that out! she cried. What the hell are you up to anyway? Nothing, said George defeated. I was just kidding around. Slapping my face wasn't just kidding around, she cried. There was a knock at the door. George opened it. It was one of the aliens. Can't you keep the noise down to a dull roar, it said. The eyes and reptilian flesh faded a little and George saw the flickering image of a fat middle-aged man in shirt sleeves. It was still a man when George slashed its throat with the eating knife, but it was an alien before it hit the floor. He dragged it into the apartment and kicked the door shut. "'What do you see there?' he asked Lil, pointing to the many-eyed snake thing on the floor. "'Mr... Mr. Coney,' she whispered, her eyes wide with horror. "'You just killed him like it was nothing at all!' "'Don't scream,' warned George, advancing on her. "'I won't, George. I swear I won't. Only, please, for the love of God, put down that knife!' She backed away until she had her shoulder blades pressed to the wall. George saw that it was no use. I'm going to tie you up, said George. First tell me which room Mr. Coney lived in. The first door on your left as you go toward the stairs, she said. Georgie, Georgie, don't torture me. If you're going to kill me, do it clean. Please, Georgie, please. He tied her up with bedsheets and gagged her, then searched the body of the fascinator. There was another one of the little radios that talked a foreign language, another set of eating utensils, and nothing else. George went next door. When he knocked, one of the snake things answered. Who is it? Friend of Mr. Coney. I want to see him, said George. He went out for a second, but he'll be right back. The door opened a crack, and four yellow eyes peeped out. Do you want to come in and wait? Okay said George, not looking at the eyes. "'You alone here?' he asked as it closed the door. "'It's back to George.' "'Yeah, why?' He slid its throat from behind, then searched the apartment. He found human bones and skulls, a half-eaten hand. He found tanks with huge fat slugs floating in them. "'The children,' he thought, and killed them all. There were guns, too, of a sort he had never seen before.' He discharged one by accident, but fortunately it was noiseless. It seemed to fire little poisoned darts. He pocketed the gun and as many boxes of darts as he could, and went back to Lil's place. When she saw him, she writhed in helpless terror. Relax, honey, he said, opening her purse. I just want to borrow your car keys. He took the keys and went downstairs to the street. Her car was still parked in the same general area in which she always parked it. He recognized it by the dent in the right fender. He got in, started it, and began driving aimlessly. He drove for hours, thinking, desperately searching for some way out. He turned on the car radio to see if he could get some music, but there was nothing but news, and it was all about him. George Nada, the homicidal maniac— The announcer was one of the masters, but he sounded a little scared. Why should he be? What could one man do? George wasn't surprised when he saw the roadblock, and he turned off on a side street before he reached it. No little trip to the country for you, Georgie boy, he thought to himself. They had just discovered what he had done back at Lil's place, so they would probably be looking for Lil's car. He parked it in an alley and took the subway. There were no aliens on the subway, for some reason. Maybe they were too good for such things, or maybe it was just because it was so late at night. When one finally did get on, George got off. He went up the street and into a bar. One of the fascinators was on the TV, saying over and over again, We are your friends! We are your friends! We are your friends! The stupid lizard sounded scared. Why? What could one man do against all of them? George ordered a beer. Then it suddenly struck him that the fascinator on the TV no longer seemed to have any power over him. He looked at it again and thought, It has to believe it can master me to do it. The slightest hint of fear on its part and the power to hypnotize is lost. They flashed George's picture on the TV screen and George retreated to the phone booth. He called his control, the chief of police. Hello. "'Robinson?' he asked. "'Speaking. "'This is George Nada. "'I've figured out how to wake people up.' "'What? "'George, hang on. "'Where are you?' "'Robinson sounded almost hysterical. "'He hung up and paid and left the bar. "'They would probably trace his call. "'He caught another subway and went downtown. "'It was dawn when he entered the building "'housing the biggest of the city's TV studios.' He consulted the building directory and then went up in the elevator. The cop in front of the studio recognized him. Why, you're not a—he gasped. George didn't like to shoot him with the poisoned dart gun, but he had to. He had to kill several more before he got into the studio itself, including all the engineers on duty. There were a lot of police sirens outside, excited shouts and running footsteps in the stairs. The alien was sitting before the TV camera, saying, "'We are your friends. We are your friends,' and didn't see George come in. When George shot him with the needle gun, he simply stopped in mid-sentence and sat there dead. George stood near him and said, imitating the alien croak, "'Wake up. Wake up. See us as we are and kill us!' It was George's voice the city heard that morning. But it was the fascinator's image, and the city did awake, for the very first time, and the war began. George did not live to see the victory that finally came. He died of a heart attack at exactly eight o'clock. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Greg. I'm Ray Nelson.
0: Nice to meet you, Ray.
2: Nice to meet you.
0: Uh, one of our uh, listeners uh, mentioned your story would be a great uh, discussion for our podcast, and uh, after reading it, I I had to agree it was pretty great. Um, and somehow I missed it. Um, I'm a big science fiction reader, and I don't think I'd ever read it before. Mm-hmm. It's uh, anthologized a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's it's like uh, Greg, you described it as like a a spare. Uh, what, how did you describe it?
1: I don't remember what you, you mean. It was
0: like, you said it was like a uh, s- s- fairly constructed
1: uh Oh, I said it was terse. Pros. The, the prose yeah. style was terse. It yeah, was like a yeah, procedural. Yeah. And I think I said it's just the facts, ma'am, meets submitted for your perusal or something like that. But it's, um, I loved the, the procedural aspect of it and, and tried to play it that way. Uh, yeah. So...
0: I, I think it's it's really uh, it's it's it packs so much into such a sh- it's like uh, nine minutes or something like that it's yeah
1: incredibly, twelve I think.
2: yeah I like just, short forms I'm a great fan of that uh, bare bones style of uh, writing
0: yeah me too me too and um, I just uh, I I've, I've I've listened to it like five or six times now since I've read it and. I was thinking, well, you know, there's a lot of, there's so much that is expanded out in your mind when you're listening to it. Like, I just, this last time listening to you, I was thinking, why, why does that alien have, or whatever it is, it's an alien, the Fascinators, why do they have uh, forks and knives that are different? <laughs> just so they'll be weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they've got a little alien radio with a strange language. They've got multiple eyes. Uh, but yeah, they they don't have regular forks and knives. But if you're an alien, why would you have a regular fork and knife, right? Exactly. So when you're eating hands, I guess that's uh, that's, you have to have especially <laughs> sharp knives.
2: Well, whatever. you know, flies have multiple eyes. That's true. And I was thinking in terms of flies.
0: It's uh, it's um, also interesting. I noted uh when I was reading the Wikipedia entry that I found a, a link to IMDb saying that there was a new adaptation uh, of the movie with your name on the adapta- uh, adapting credits. Is, uh,
2: well, that's it's, um, it's in the works? solved at the moment. Uh, but um, theoretically, it's going to be in the theater sometime this year. Cool.
1: Is that the Matt Reeves version? The guy that made Cloverfield and
2: i I don't really know whose version it is at this point because that's one of the things that's sort of up in the air.
1: oh, uh-huh. okay. I thought they had announced that Matt Reeves was going to be the director and write the screenplay and stuff but but that's crap on the internet, and you can't trust <laughs> it
2: well it has uh the decision has not yet reached me, and i'm and I'm one of the possible candidates for doing the screenplay.
1: Oh great.
0: Yeah, yeah, it should be good. I know I'm I'm actually uh I came late to the John Carpenter adaptation as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh called They Live. But uh looking uh, I just watched it the other day and looking back at it, it's it's like more appropriate now than it was uh then. It was it was uh it was basically talking about uh, Occupy Wall Street, except Exactly. It's, you know, Los exactly. Angeles. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's uh it's about uh, the one percent not being just you know uh mean they're also <laughs> they're out to eat us you know and literally it, it's 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 even more appropriate than uh i think that's one of the best short story adaptations i've ever seen
2: for a film. well it's um it's uh, going around again they're gonna bring out the original version on a
0: mm.
2: on a DVd
0: cool. And um, uh, although I don't think it's ever mentioned in the movie, they also didn't uh, change the main character's name. His name is Nada.
2: Nada means nothing in uh, <laughs> yeah. Spanish.
0: I yep. was thinking, I was thinking, uh, it's like the he's just a nothing little man. Is that the idea?
2: Well, that's sort of the idea. And the other part of the idea is that I thought if I left him with no traits then uh-huh. every reader would identify with it there right. wouldn't be somebody else's personality in there crowding him
0: yeah i think that works really well and uh it's it it is it's like a it's like a modern fable uh, addressing you know I, like a twilight zone episode addressing one of the classic you know sort of meta metaphysical dilemmas or epistemological dilemmas that that every uh, teenager sort of looks out at the world and says, well, all the smart ones anyways, look out at the world and say, hey, I don't really, uh, I don't trust that. Uh, right. What if it's Well,
2: conspiracy. I intended to show a certain amount of distrust of television.
0: Absolutely. Still
1: absolutely. a good idea.
0: All right. Absolutely. Um, in fact, uh, you know, the the... Uh, the Work eight hours, sleep eight hours, reproduce. You know, all those. It, it, the messages don't have to be, um, uh, you know, give us all your money. They can just be uh, keep things as they are, don't rock the boat, and uh, just do what everyone else is doing. Sort of. Uh, exactly right. Yeah, it, it's 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 really nice to have something so subversive. You can just hey say hey read this, and uh,
2: sometimes you could sneak one of these things through the mass media, disguised.
0: It it worked incredibly well, and I I think I think Greg did a really good job in the reading. We're going to get you a copy so you can have a have a hear of that. Um, but I also I discovered after I talked to you last time that you had co-written a novel with Philip K. Dick, one of the two people to do that.
2: Well, actually, I'm the only one who actually co-wrote because the other people who co-wrote just picked up a scrap that was unfinished and finished it, but I actually did collaborate.
0: Oh, really? With,
2: uh, Philip K. Dick on the Ganymede Takeover.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: We were and... physically present in the same room.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think uh, Roger Zelazny did uh, Deus Irae, which I have, but I have that's not right. read yet. Um, and I think that's based on a short story. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but I think it's based on a short story. And I, I... Thought I had most of Philip K. Dick's books, but I didn't have yours, so I've I've ordered a copy. It has not arrived yet. Um, I think but, you'll like it. Well, yeah, well, it sounds it sounds really interesting. It so, is. It oh, yeah, you read it. Oh, well, uh,
1: I have a hardback copy. Ah. Um, <laughs> I I think I bought it in the 80s sometime. I don't remember. Um, but um, but yeah, I I there's a specific era from Philip K. Dick that I Am drawn to, and this is towards the end of that era, and um, uh, you know, this is these are these are his best days, as far as I'm concerned. It's not that I don't like the Valis trilogy and all that sort of stuff, but uh, it it gets less accessible. And if you're trying to get a message across, as George, you know, as uh, Ray was saying, you want to give something to the reader. You give them a role, uh, give them something to identify with, and let them use their imaginations. And and and. Ganymede takeover is 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 pretty high up there in terms of uh, communicating that message.
2: Well, that is the book uh, that I worked on that's been the most translated. That thing is, I think, currently at fifteen different translations.
0: Wow! And uh, they uh, love they love
2: Phil and I in, in France. We're yeah. a hit. Yeah. In Paris. <laughs> yes.
0: It's uh it's like the French are just living in the future they they know uh they they just know goodness you know classics when they when they when they see it and they just pick it up and say this is a classic immediately whereas it, in the states it takes you know uh 30 or 40 years and then the film comes out and and then people say oh yeah i remember that guy he, he used to write some books what's he doing now well,
2: the uh french poet baudelaire Translated Edgar Allan Poe and promoted Edgar Allan Poe, and without him, we would not be studying Edgar Allan Poe today. He was just a local celebrity until totally. Baudelaire made him an inter- international celebrity with his
0: translation. Yeah, it's yeah. it's uh, amazing stuff.
1: Yeah, nor would we have the form of the short story the way it works now. Cause that, that oh, yeah, very-
2: uh, absolutely right there. Yeah.
0: When when you were doing the collaboration, uh, was that what? How did that occur? I, I read in uh, either the Wikipedia entry for you or the introduction to your story in again Dangerous Visions that you uh, were childhood friends with Philip K.
2: Dick. yeah, that's true. We both went to Hillside School and uh, also Ursula again.
0: Oh wow! We had
2: a little circle of people, uh, <laughs> kids. Who sat at the edge of the playground and told stories, each one trying to top the other. And much to the disgust of the playground manager, who thought we should be doing more exercise.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I want a time machine. I know where I'm going. I'm going to go back there with a paper recorder and see what I can get. Out of those stories, that's uh,
2: uh, Well, it's that was really awesome. where uh, Phil and I and Ursula all got started doing stories, sitting around the flagpole there at Hillside School in the Berkeley Hills.
0: Wow. Wow. Must have known him while he was in California. He moved to Colorado at some point. So this is like from 1950s to, I guess this book was 67, I'm not sure when he moved uh, to Colorado, but uh, you, you're a California guy, but you're also you've been to France as well.
2: Yeah, I was there for five years, and the tail some, end of the
0: '50s. Yeah, and you met and did basically everything according to I, I've never seen Harlan Ellison so in awe of anyone else other than himself in his <laughs> writing, uh, but he was he was very impressed with your. Your, uh, it it seemed that way, anyways, in the reading of your your life.
2: Well, I I think I have one, kind of an interesting life. Well, in in, uh, in Paris, I met some pretty big name people. I was in the same group with Jean Paul Sartre. Wow. Uh, He'd already written all of his masterpieces, and he was mainly a figurehead at that time. But he was a very smart figurehead. <laughs>
0: Um, And it said you did some book smuggling.
1: Uh, Henry Miller. Yeah, I did some book
2: smuggling there. I had a little business going there for a while.
1: Where did you smuggle? The
2: the cops called me in and they said, well, we think this is literature, but the British think it's pornography. So we will have to politely request that you cease sending these books out of the country. And I felt that it was wise to comply with the gendarmes.
0: Lest you be kicked out of the country.
2: Lest I be kicked out. So I managed to stay there until my passport visas ran out.
0: Wow. Um, I think it was the Wikipedia entry that also suggested that when Philip K. Dick took acid, that you were the the man who gave it to him.
2: Yeah, I was the man. He, ha- he took it twice. And the second trip was so bad that he never wanted to take it again. I think it may have derailed him a little bit, and 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 flashbacks from that experience may have influenced his uh, last writings.
0: Yeah, I think you may be right.
2: Unapproachable.
0: I think you may be right about that because uh, I've, like Greg, have been exploring his earlier career, and as it goes into his later career, there's a lot more um, internal stuff, I think. I, I mm-hmm. think the earlier works he's got are about how to understand your personal relationship with the universe. But mm-hmm. uh, as you go in, I think he comes up with more answers than he has questions.
2: Yeah, I think that that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Phil and I were both interested in the question of whether reality is real.
0: Uh, uh, did you ever come to any conclusion on that? I'm still asking that question
1: <laughs> Well, we myself.
2: decided that there were two kinds of reality, the private and the public, and they didn't
0: match. Yeah, they don't fit very well.
1: Yep, yep. But all we have is our shared reality in order to get through this podcast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: yeah. Uh, and I love I love radio theater, and if you guys could bring radio theater back, maybe we would stimulate the imaginations of the world.
0: Well, you know, I just heard, uh, Greg. You just did a new project with the that new radio drama company out of Australia.
1: Yeah, um, I've heard about that. There, there are a bunch of people trying. Um, it, it's the numbers aren't great, but there are enough people that are attracted by using their imaginations as opposed to having everything handed to them that it does get some numbers and, and yeah, I've been working with Tim Heffernan down there and we've been doing, a, the
0: drama pod,
1: the drama pod. And it's done by people all over the world and, and assembled by him. So the actors don't have each other to bounce off of. We don't know like the delivery of the previous line. I just have to assume it was delivered the way I would deliver it and then, <laughs> <laughs> you know, respond to it that way. And so, I think the biggest challenge is in the editing and, and getting it all to, which they do a great job of. It's, it's, it's just, it's not like radio where we would all stand around in the studio and bounce off of one another.
2: Yeah. It's uh, not recorded. I live. like that bouncing around.
1: Me I too. do too. Me too. I love that.
2: I did some radio theater for listener supported radio here in Berkeley. We did some uh, adaptations of various science fiction stories on a show called The Cosmic Circle.
0: I don't know about that one. Uh, I wonder if uh, any of it's available on tape somewhere.
2: Somewhere, yeah, but uh, not here. (laughs) I don't have any copies of it.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: It's possible that there are copies of the station. KPFA is still here in the Berkeley area, still working. But they're not working so much the way we work. We sort of uh, had the microphone and that was it.
0: What do they do now they're just like put on they're the... They're
2: using recordings a lot. Ah. We hardly ever use recordings. We were live. And knowing that they're, that you're live and you can't go back and fix it really puts you on uh, on your toes.
0: It's also also makes the listening a little bit more exciting, you know, when you mm-hmm. you That's you're right. you're wondering what's going to happen next <laughs> because you you're Experiencing it along with everybody else, I think live television was that way as well. But it still wow. is. yeah, well, do they do any live television anymore other than well, like the well, news or
1: Saturday Night Live?
0: Oh uh, but, yeah, I guess there's that. Yeah,
1: but um, but back in the 50s when your show of shows was on, to me that's you know Sid Caesar and Imogene Coca were the. <laughs> the pinnacle of that because uh, they had absolutely to, yeah i mean 90 minutes a week it was just insane and the the writing room at that place was uh mel brooks woody allen larry wow. Belbart. um you know just everybody you know now is out there but yeah and i and that's to me what what television comedy should be about well
2: these days they are so uh it, it costs so much to do a television show that they are uh, always trying to be safe. I think yeah. the last unsafe television show was uh, The Vampire Slayer, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That was the last show that uh, was edgy. Now it's uh, everybody's ordinary life. Mm-hmm. And if I, I already have my ordinary life. How about a, something with a little fantasy tossed in?
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, the only thing that I've seen that, uh you know the 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 kind that i really like is the anthology series uh where you know you never know what you're going to get the next day and uh the next episode and uh, right. of course you know they've tried to reboot the twilight zone a number of times and it's you know it goes a season and then <laughs> they cancel it and it goes a season and they cancel it. i don't think anthologies are well respected anymore but i just watched uh the first episode of a new british series called black mirror and I don't know if it's science fiction or not, but whatever it is, it's unbelievably bizarre. And I love that it doesn't play down to the audience. So there is there is still good stuff being made for the boob tube, but it's
2: uh, yeah, and the BBC, the BBC people will right.
0: Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I I don't see a lot coming out of uh, regular commercial television that's that's uh, too exciting.
2: Well, i'm I have hopes for radio. If we hadn't have one good writer like Carlton E. Morris, one Carlton E. Morris could revive radio.
0: you know, um, it's still alive in Canada radio drama, but it's it's kind of, uh, you know, we're down to one show. it It actually should be more than that because with podcasting, allowing people to listen anytime any time they want, if they miss the episode, you know, it's not a point. It's not an appointment that people have to keep. They can m- move it around. Uh, right. You would think that it would be more popular, but
2: here in the States, I we think have people got a companion and that's it.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Um, and I, and, and there's something I also miss about that appointment. Like I knew when X minus one was going to be on and i hey, had that's
2: to, right that's a good point
1: i had to be by the radio and that was important to me
2: it was a it was something special yeah it was like a, a date with your best girlfriend <laughs> yeah you you thought about it don't
0: miss week. that date yeah <laughs> it, it seems to me that uh, x minus one and uh dimension x I, i've only heard them you know i never heard them actually on the radio i've only heard them since but um, those, uh, those were all performed live. And I know escape and suspense, they were, um, they would do the same show. Like uh, they had a really popular show. They would do it three or four years later. They just redo it again. And right. in the, because nobody's recording it and taping it for the most part, uh, that's, you know, your only chances you better show up. But I think,
2: well, actually I have quite a few, I have a collection of, uh, recordings of radio theater shows that I play at intervals for my friends.
0: Yeah, they're... There's a lot of science
2: fiction is on, on that, too, and yep. fantasy.
0: So what what are your favorite shows? You've got X-1 in there?
2: Well, I think uh, I Love a Mystery has got to take the
0: break. I Love a Mystery, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Jack, Doc, and Reggie and the Chamber of Vampire. That's <laughs> cool. <laughs>
0: There is, there's a a friend of mine has a show, um, a podcast that, uh, uses multiple, uh, old time radio, uh, programs Mm -hmm. in a collection. He calls it the OTR swag cast swag as in, uh, you know, proceeds of a robbery, I guess. Um, uh, and he, he likes, uh, his favorite, I think is, um, uh, either escape or suspense, Um, And he usually will get a theme going, so he'll do a vampire theme, or he'll Mm. do a, uh, he's got one that's set in South America, uh, airplanes in South America, I can't remember what it's called, but it's really uh, just uh, Mayan temples and Aztec, uh, not zombies, uh, mummies, and all all those things that you say, I wonder what's going to happen this week, you know, it's great.
2: The monster of the week. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, Temple of the Vampires. I think that's, that's what it's
2: That's it. That's it. You got it. That's
0: mm-hmm. it. I just. That's actually from I Love a Mystery. Yeah.
2: Yes, that's from I Love a Mystery.
0: Yeah, that's the one I was thinking of.
2: In radio theater, they would have uh, different characters have different accents. Uh, Jack was sort of standard American, and uh, Doc was from Texas, and Reggie was a Brit. And you could tell them apart by their accents. Otherwise, yeah. there was always a problem.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, you know, I should send you, uh, when I'm sending you this recording, I should also send you uh, his show, my friend's show. His name is Bill Holwig, because now that I'm thinking about it, the show he does, which is, um, it's an old-time radio style. Uh, it's done mm-hmm. as, just like Greg does his new show. What, what's that new show called again, Greg? The, one,
1: the Quantum Door, you
0: The mean? Quantum Door, that's right. Yeah. Oh, I love uh, that title. Oh, yeah, it's great, isn't it? it? It makes you
1: I, I have nothing it's it's all written by a variety of people led by this guy named Tim Heffernan and um I like it cuz I get to be Rod Serling I Yeah,
0: uh, that's right. You yeah. The introductions and rather yeah. large shoes to fill, I think. I think Greg's got a great voice for it though.
1: Well, I don't know. I do what I can.
0: <laughs> Bill Holweg has a show called uh, well actually it's not his show. He's he's one of the stars of it and he does the editing for it, I believe. It's uh, called Jake Sampson, Monster Hunter.
2: Well, that's sort of uh, Pulp Magazine.
0: Absolutely. It's absolutely (laughs) Pulp Magazine. Um, And they travel to Egypt to uh, solve some problem in in an archaeological dig. Uh, They have to go down to Texas and uh, uh, help Robert E. Howard uh, close that uh, dimensional gate that he's been traveling through to get his stories um, and H.P. Lovecraft ah, is getting into character. trouble. Yeah, exactly. He's uh, he's got. I hear the distant that,
2: yes. voice of H.P. Lovecraft.
0: You got it. And all those uh, squiggling uh, tentacles coming out of the uh, from behind the door. Don't mind them.
2: <laughs> Don't mind them. Man.
0: So I'm gonna read. I'm gonna read uh, Ganymede Takeover, and oh, as soon as it arrives, I think that's gonna be my my big treat. Uh, how come there hasn't been a recent reprinting of that? Is it, um, is it uh, who, who owns the copyright? Is that you? Is it the, I own
2: the copyright.
0: State? Well, why don't we get that, uh, republished?
2: It's, it's getting harder and harder to republish anything.
1: Yeah. Really? Yeah. Paper books are going through the ceiling. They're just, it, their day is over. I, I, I weep, but no more paper guys.
0: Ebook and, and audiobooks Certainly we, we, I, I can put you in contact with uh, some audiobook producers and uh, get an audiobook version made. I mean, that's what we focus on here is is audiobooks and audio drama. Mm-hmm. So I should be able to find somebody if you're if you're amenable. I uh, I, I want. To
2: I'm have amenable, money. but the, but the market is shrinking.
0: Well, for audiobooks, no. it's growing.
1: Yeah, but, and and we don't have to worry about the market. So, like, I'm affiliated with a site called iambic.com. I yeah. could choose to do the Ganymede takeover, and nobody would. I mean, it would just be, you know, we get what we would just get a cut of whatever it sells. And if it only sells two copies, then okay. you and I get checks for thirty cents. But <laughs> but the thing can get well, made. I can
2: always spend thirty cents.
1: Well, <laughs> actually, it'll be higher than that. But um, it'll get made, and it'll. It'll move some product. I mean, if you want to do it, and I wouldn't mind doing the the uh, the Blake book, the William Blake book, either.
0: Oh yeah, that that's the other one I wanted to uh, read. I, I'm, I I I scour shelves looking for books to read. I've never seen a Ray Nelson book on the shelf, even though I have a bunch of those laser books. You did some yeah. laser books, right? Yeah. Um,
2: I did more than you think.
0: <laughs> oh, was, uh, they're not all under the uh huh. I I actually I, I like the 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 consistency. You know, I'm a book collector, so I like the consistency mm-hmm. of the of the the art style, and I like the colors. Um, some of the books are good, some of the books are bad. What What other pseudonyms did you write under? I might have one of your. I can't
1: remember right now. It's been a long time.
0: Okay. Well.
1: There's a uh, list on his website.
0: Oh, is there? Okay. Yeah. You know, that's the yeah, other that's thing. That's right. I got a website. It's raynelson
1: dot com.
0: easy to uh, remember you're also a cartoonist
2: oh that's true
0: and i was i was looking at your your cartoons on the on your website and they are they sort of run the gamut as well they're not just uh science fiction based they're they've got other themes going on in there
2: well my main source of income is not my books it's my job as a uh, art director and um cartoonist or artist for magazine and it's a trade journal for window cleaners the american window cleaner magazine i was our director and main artist on that for many decades and that was putting the bread on the table but it sure gave my art style a polish turned out several hundred drawings during my tenure at that magazine
0: just looking at uh Inflate my girl, G- James the Viagra is kicking Ah, <laughs> oh, These are good stuff.
2: Yeah, I, I was known as a cartoonist before I had any stories uh, published. I was known am- among the
0: fans
2: of fantasy and science fiction for having invented the propeller beanie.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, I was reading about that on your... It, it said uh, something like... You, you, oh, no, it was IMDB. There was a quote saying... Uh, Tens of thousands of generations from now, when everybody's forgotten your writing, you will still be known as the man who invented the propeller beanie.
2: That's right. Did you get a patent I recently on that? We discovered that, that propeller beanies had appeared before. Oh, really? That is, they appear for a few seconds in an early uh, black and white musical with uh, Fred Astaire. Called flying down to Rio. At the end of that, there is a sequence where a lot of uh, dancers are dancing on the wings of airplane, and some of those dancers are wearing propeller beanies. So I'm I'm soft puddling the propeller beanie thing now. But I didn't know about the uh, I didn't know about the appearance in flying down to Rio at the time that I did that first propeller beanie.
0: In propeller beanie time, people invent propeller beanies, right?
2: <laughs> That's it. That's it. <laughs>
0: Uh, well you know I think that it sort of speaks to uh to the I I want to take off you know <laughs> you, oh, when you yeah. put that on it's it's like uh, uh I, I, I want the future to come and 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 take me away to uh to these <laughs> cool places that are fascinating.
1: Uh you know my father was at the 39 World's Fair and mm-hmm. he told me about it until the day he died you know what it impact it had on him and I I saw that it had the same kind of impact on you, only you were probably about 10 years younger. Um, just, just tell me your impression of the world of tomorrow and the way that whole thing hit you.
2: Well, the whole idea of there being a, a fabulous world of tomorrow waiting for us up ahead already inflated my imagination. But the big moment was when my brother and I were standing at the foot of this gigantic robot. And the robot had had one great trick. It was a one trick pony, but it was quite a trick. It blew a uh, perfect circle uh, smoke ring. And here's my brother and I looking up with our eyeballs popping out of our heads and me sort of getting onto the trail of science fiction and I'm still on
0: it. Apparently his name was Electro.
2: Electro. <laughs> and
0: Sparky. The smoking was a dog.
2: He had a robot dog named Sparky. <laughs> Oh yeah, he you, is. You can huge. see, I still remember it after all yeah. these
1: years. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. No, my father, it made such an impression on him, and that's that's one of the things I envy the most. That you know of his stories. I didn't get to see Fats Waller live, and I didn't go to the 39 World's Fair. I'm, um, I'm also. That's in, yes, it is. It is. Um, so, there were one two of your,
2: World's fairs? One was out on the coast here on Treasure Island near San Francisco.
0: Right. Right.
2: And uh, there's a story on that, and that is that uh, the San Francisco one refused to uh, let uh, Hitler have a booth on Treasure oh. Island and he was replaced by a a, a striptees show. It was <laughs> right in the slot that had been reserved for Hitler. But Hitler had a big Hitler had a big show in New York. I remember that. It was all all like um, like an old fashioned farm was was being touted, except that there were a lot of swastikas hanging around. Wow! At that point, Hitler Hitler was presenting himself to the world as somebody who would revive the good old days of the independent farmer.
1: Yeah, that's still what they're doing.
2: I guess so. Yeah, and the yep. independent farmer is turning into a dinosaur
1: yeah it's yeah it's all factory farms now and um i'd also like to talk about you you write under the name of the old beatnik in some cases and so
2: well, um, the old beatnik you... is the name that i used when i was writing for small uh, press publications in san francisco during the era of the beatnik well are you a the guy uh, who j- invented the name beatnik was herb kane who was a friend of mine and a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle. He's the guy who invented that word by combining the word speaknick with the word beat. The the word beat had already gotten attached to to the movement because uh, when asked uh, why they were so um, lying around so uh, half asleep when they were being interviewed in New York, I guess it was Kerouac who said, we're just beat. And the oh. uh, interviewer picked up
1: the ball and ran with it. That's great. I didn't know that. So, so do you think of yourself as a beat? I mean, do 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 you have a synchronistic view of the universe?
2: Uh, Someone, yeah, me and Phil both. Yeah. Both of us appeared in uh, small press publications. Uh, I think uh, one of Phil's poems has gotten reprinted recently. From, um, what was that magazine? I can't remember the name of the magazine, but I have a copy of it. Yeah, I was mm. the old beat thing. But I wasn't really that old at that time. But I <laughs> sure. took on the persona. I could probably take on the persona with, uh, shamelessly now because I just ex- turned 80. Ah! I turned 80 back on October 3rd.
1: Congratulations.
2: I made it to 80.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm going to have 10 one?
2: good years I think because my father uh, he died at 96 and his father died at 97 so I'm looking to be 90 at least
0: yeah you got a 16 or 17 years to go
1: yeah I'm there's stuff to do fun. yet
0: stuff to do right on
1: so uh, I also wanted to I noticed that you started out uh, with a theology major at the University of Chicago um,
2: well I was a Yeah, there's a a school there. What is it called? Uh, I temporarily forget the name of it. But there's a a theological seminary associated with the University of Chicago, and you customarily uh, do a certain number of uh, courses at the university before you get into the, the the seminary. And I was headed in that direction, but I was having much spending much more time drawing pictures than I was learning about God.
0: I, I, I can't say I, I blame you for doing the drawing. I, w- I did a, an Edgar Allan Poe drawing yesterday while I was waiting for a student to finish his hey, homework. And I was cool. I, I, I was really I was pleased with it, so I, I sent it to a couple of people, and they were like, oh, it's Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fun. I, I don't know why people don't just draw more often for fun, because it's, it's, it's great to be able to see your own stuff. Well, I mean, scared. I'm nowhere... They're scared.
2: That's the problem. They say, yep. "Oh, it's not good enough."
1: Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I saw that thing on your site. You know, every little kid knows how to draw, and then they essentially drill that out of you. That's
2: true. Yeah. I do believe that's true.
1: Yeah, yeah. I do too. And I and also there was a time, you know, before photography, where you had to learn to draw if you were going to be you know, any sort of like you know Darwin or somebody like that. You had to draw all that stuff in your journal as well as report the data, and so it was just expected that you would be able to draw, you would be able to write poetry.
0: You yeah, it's something you would be taught in school, in fact. Uh, you know that you, you have to, you have to get up to a certain level so that you can do your job. But yeah, you know, that's true. It's it the the focus and, seems to be on writing essays, which you know I I love writing essays myself, but. I don't know why they're teaching everybody that they must learn to write essays because there's not that many jobs that require you to write essays all day long.
2: Well, mm,
0: there's guess, a few. Uh,
2: newspaper reporting is like
0: that. <laughs> Yeah, there's yeah. not very many of those left, though. You know, it's
2: that's true. The newspapers are sinking along with the
0: rest of the ship.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's all gone to shit, Jesse. You just don't know what you're missing.
0: Uh, you know. Uh... <laughs> Uh, i think I think I think that it's getting replaced though I think podcasting is is one of these cool new things um I'm not a big youtuber, but I think a lot of people are doing great work uh being creative in yeah you know yeah. sort of in their their own personal artistic ways rather than uh, consuming the mass culture
1: yeah it, it, the technique has changed, and I'm not saying there aren't people out there doing good work. it's just that the smell of a used bookstore is is going to be gone in, you know, 10 or 15 years, and we're going to be the only people on Earth that remember the smell of a used bookstore.
0: (laughs) And that's hard to capture except maybe in an an essay, right?
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's true. Yeah, and Ray, also, um, I was looking for a copy of How to Fuck Like the Stars, and uh, I can't find it anywhere. Uh, (laughs) Do you own the copyright on that? Is that... uh...
2: Um, no, I don't, I don't own the copyright on any of my porno books. And they were all, as, okay. as they say, done for hire. And, uh, the publishers okay. made the most of that. <laughs> no, the, the book is called How to Do It. And then in small print, sort of qualifying and like okay. star. But it's, okay. when it's listed, if it's listed,
1: it says How to Do It. I'll look again. It it sounds like it has a lot of wisdom in there that I could use. I,
2: I think it has a lot of laughs, but I'd have to look again for any wisdom in it at all.
1: <laughs>
0: how, how much research did you do uh, for that?
2: Well, I had to do a lot of lab work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> write, a lot, write a lot of essays, do a lot of drawings.
1: <clears throat> That's great. I, I
0: didn't see that on uh, your bibliography, but I maybe I missed it.
2: Well, I've always been, been on the edge of the underworld in one way or another, uh, drawing and writing pornography, and then in France I was smuggling pornography, and uh, there's a lot of there used to be anyway a lot of actual gangsters in my social circle.
0: I'm looking at your bibliography on Wikipedia. It's not complete. Um, it says Virtual Zen 1996.
2: Well, there's, uh, there's a lot that I've written that I'm not particularly interested in having people track down. Yeah. The, the stuff that I did for hire was done uh, in a very lighthearted fashion and, uh, and sometimes taking uh, positions and voices that I didn't actually hold and, and don't hold now. Stuff that has my actual name on it, Is me talking, but the others are uh, whoever I happen to be at that particular moment.
0: (laughs) You've lived many lives, it 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 seems like.
2: Well, I think that's true. I've uh, I have a a slogan: "Push where it gives." So if something starts to work, (laughs) I work with it.
0: That sounds right. When I got to Paris,
2: the only thing I had to do was uh, I started out singing in the street. And I was wearing a cowboy suit at the time. So I got to be known as Tex. And, but I didn't, nobody put any money into my cowboy hat until I started to sing um, black spirituals. And then, so here I am in a cowboy suit, singing black spirituals, and a guy named Boris Vian, who's also a science fiction writer. He's on the other side of the street, and he shouts across the street, never heard a white boy sing so black <laughs> so that was how I penetrated the the inner circles of French in intellectual society. That's <laughs> I, great. I was the white boy who sang black, and I stayed being Tex until I left France. Wow. <laughs>
0: So yeah, that's that's another uh, sort of uh, uh, alternate pseudonym, uh, Ray Tex Nelson.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was called Texas Singing Cowboy. There's a there's a turning point in the career of a singer when you sing indoors rather than outdoors, and I managed to turn that corner. But I still had my cowboy hat on. And I and as I learned how to speak French, I was told. Don't lose your American accent. That's your most important asset.
1: <laughs> so they they actually wanted to hear you like say "Come on, vous. I mean, they <laughs>
2: they wanted they wanted to hear "Come on, Talayvu."
1: Right. <laughs>
2: uh, that, that would show that I was authentic.
1: Uh-huh. That right. That word I'm
2: "authentic" has a sort yeah. of uh, uh, religious tone to it in France. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Good so, w- when did you use Jeffrey Lord as a pseudonym?
2: Oh, Jeffrey Lord was a series uh, of books um, about Richard Blade. He's a guy who connects to a machine and it transports him to an alternate reality. And I did a, a, a several, let me see, six books as uh, Richard Blade. No, Jeffrey Lord uh, writing about um, Richard Blade.
0: Uh, are this those one the is called laser uh, hmm? are those the laser books? No, are they what? The, I thought they those were the laser books, but they're not right?
2: No no, that's uh, Lyle Kenyon Engel's uh, uh, series. The laser books were done for uh, the Toronto Star publishers, also the publishers of Harlequin.
0: yeah, they're... they
2: do the Harlequin romances and they were launching a science fiction line.
0: I really liked that concept. i uh, not sure how well it worked out. They sort of abandoned it. Uh, but I think, you know, they—they they, I, I wish they had done better because it, it was a really great idea for a line of books, I think.
2: Well, uh, I think it, it did. The trouble is that some of the books sold a lot more than others. And the yeah. Toronto Star's attitude is they want something that sells at a consistent rate, no matter who's yeah. writing it. And, That's uh, why they're the in the romance. The fiction people were too unruly. They kept writing what they pleased <laughs> instead of following the formulas. So even though the uh, financially speaking it was a successful line, but uh, from an editorial standpoint it wasn't because the science fiction writers were too uh, pig-headed and anarchistic for them.
0: Uh was was Jeffrey Lord a uh, a shared pseudonym? Yeah. Okay, so uh, if we were going to find the um, the Ray Nelson Jeffrey Lords, what where do we start in the uh, oh, dear. the series? Oh dear. series Looking at a book called The Bronze Axe. That's the
1: first one.
2: No, that's not mine. Yeah, there's, there's a bunch one... of
1: Ray Nelsons. Yeah.
2: I actually uh, haven't thought about that for so long that I can't remember what the titles are.
0: Well, if you've got them around somewhere, I I'll mm-hmm. send you an email and and we'll uh we'll add those to the list of things to try and find copies of. Oh, it looks like oh. No, yeah, there's an audiobook of one of them, Slave of Sarma.
2: I think that's mine. Oh, really? Yeah, And then you have familiar. one audiobook
0: out there. Um it well. came out 2003. Lloyd James was the narrator.
2: Yeah, well, I didn't well, keep very good track of those books because they were, once again, they were uh, for, for hire books. So I didn't, I don't hold the copyright, Tom.
0: Yeah. One new copy is eighty-one dollars and twenty-one cents.
2: Woo, I'm flattered, Yeah, You're like oh. gold. <laughs> I, I'm not putting anything into my pocket, but I, my <laughs> ego is inflating at a rapid rate.
0: Wow. It's funny that they they, they just pick uh, maybe 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 there's more of them out there. Yeah, it says audio CD. There's Pearl of Parmo Patmos. Hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna that doesn't sound some. familiar. Okay. All right. Um now California Ray. Is that just uh like there's a lot of That's
2: Ray, a poet. Doesn't... That's uh-huh. a poem. Oh uh uh-huh. I wrote and recited poems under that name. Uh-huh. I was on the same uh, platform quite a few times with Alan Ginsberg.
0: yeah I, I think I, I think that was in uh, the- introdu- the introduction mm-hmm. to the story and again, dangerous visions um, there's
2: a sort of in the poetry world there's a division between those people who rhyme and those people who don't, right. and I was one of those who did so
1: you wrote verse,
2: I wrote verse, verse and verse
1: as I yeah. went along. I I noticed it. It said you met you met Ginsberg and Corso and Burroughs. You didn't meet yeah. Ferlinghetti. I mean well, I met Getty, sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I was just surprised. He's, he's the guy who has a
2: bookstore. He's the one who published yeah
1: uh,
2: uh, Alan Ginsberg yeah uh, first uh, book Howl.
1: Yeah, Howl. Yeah, he's City Lights books. And in, in well, you're there. I mean, you know, City, City
2: Lights books is still there, but uh, yeah, uh, Getty isn't.
1: Yeah, I know, I know, but but years ago, that's where I met him, sitting on a chair in front of City Light Books. Oh yeah, nice Well, guy. that was
2: the headquarters for the for what became known as the Beatniks. Right. But their own name, or our own name for ourselves, was we were the San Francisco Renaissance. But that was too hoity-toity for the press, so they yeah. they actually invented the Beatnik. Well,
1: the it's. The journalists
2: it's... invented the Beatnik.
1: Yeah, um, your term is more descriptive I, I'm in, in terms of what you were actually doing. So, that's what I mean, we
2: thought we were doing anyway.
1: Well, I, I think you were instrumental in spreading some postmodern existentialism out there, and that's that was important to me. So I recognize that contribution and value it.
2: Well, thank you kindly. I'm yeah. I'm getting my, my I'm going to explode from all this praise that I'm getting. <laughs> Finding out that people are paying fabulous prices for my uh,
0: well, somebody's asking a fabulous price. I don't know titles. if they're actually paying it yet, but uh, if 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 that's the only copy available, I might have to pay for it. I don't, I'm hoping mm. that I can find a better deal. Well, than that. I,
2: the the Jeffrey Lord books, I don't know if I can honestly recommend them. If if I did a book that I really like. Even if it was pornography, I did put my name on it. My name uh, is on, I think, uh, "How to Do It," for example.
1: Mm. And
2: there's "Sex Happy Hippie." That was a nice one. <laughs> that's one of my porno books.
0: What well, what what publisher would that be for? Because um, I'm I'm fairly. I think that
2: bedside books.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm I'm fairly familiar with like I know Robert Silverberg w- wrote. Uh, the sleaze books, as I think he calls them, and and uh, Lawrence Block and Donald Westlake, they all wrote for New York uh, sleaze books publishers, and wow. some of those are getting I, reprinted.
2: Here's, here's something that, that almost nobody knows, and that is that Marion Zimmer Bradley and I yeah, co-wrote right. a book called I Lesbian. Of course, neither <laughs> she nor I actually were lesbians.
0: Yeah, but you combine <laughs> you together and then
2: yeah, well, that, that makes, uh, uh, both of us together makes a bisexual.
0: That's right. <laughs> and, and, and you know all about uh, writing about lesbians, because you just combine the two aspects. Um, so that's long out of print, it looks like. Um, yeah, but what, long yeah. out of print, but <laughs> what was, it, it, it contained some was of that. the best
2: writing that either Marion or I ever did. Yeah, part of that. it takes place in the in the pre-Beatnik uh, San Francisco poetry scene, which uh, we conveniently uh, connected to the lesbian scene. And uh, both Marion and I did some really fine writing in that book.
0: Uh, do you have the copyright on that?
2: Nope, it's another Can for hire. I uh, did a lot of stuff for hire because, frankly, I didn't give a damn. <laughs> Yeah. I didn't I didn't fight to keep my copyright. Some some other writers have fought and ki- and kept their copyrights. Harlan Ellison is very uh um, litigious. He will sue. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. But I don't want the hassle. I I if I if I have um if I have a can of beans in the pantry I'm, huh. I'm rich.
0: <laughs> I, I is was that under a name Yvonne Jonette? J. O. No,
2: we were we were Lee Chapman.
0: Lee Chapman. Okay.
2: Marion and I were Lee Chapman together. <laughs> we we were pals from uh, the from the '40s when we were both amateur publishers.
0: Is she a West Coaster as well?
2: Well, she she was a West Coaster when she came to the West Coast, but she. Uh, she came from Texas, I believe. That's where she lived before she came out here.
0: Uh I I see a book here called I Am a Lesbian by Lee Chapman and it's from Monarch Books 1962. Is that do you think that's it?
2: That's it, but okay. uh you know, the real title is I Lesbian. It's not I. Uh, am on the
0: Ger- uh, a German Amazon, maybe that's why it's not
1: coming uh, up. Your title is definitely better.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: <laughs> mhm.
2: Well, you know, a, a lot of uh, writers originally got to got together as publishers by mimeograph of amateur magazines, of fanzines. And when I first knew Marion, she was Astra Zimmer. That was her name. <laughs> and then she got married and turned into Bradley. Uh, but she hang on to the Bradley name because uh, people had already become familiar with it by the time she got a divorce.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't blame right. her. And that there's another smell that no one's the smell of a mimeograph machine.
0: I have uh, a mimeograph that. age. Mm. What, what is that? What is that smell? It's kind of uh, acidic. <laughs> I just barely <laughs> yeah. remember it, right? It's like the
2: blues. That's where Ray Bradbury got his start in mimeographs. <laughs> there were h- hundreds of mimeographs across the nation. And uh, amateur publishers uh, churning out vast quantities of material, and some of the um, amateurs, uh, Bob Silverberg got started. Fanzines—it's mm. a long list.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was—it was basically the first personal press that that's one it. guy could have and just pump the thing, and out they'd come. So that's it.
2: Yeah. Before that, it was really uh, difficult to have an a- amateur a publication because it was hand-set type. You had to uh, laboriously uh, make a font full of type and then print it and then take down the stuff and put it in again. But nevertheless, Clark Ashton Smith, he was one mm-hmm. of the Lovecraft group. That's right. how he got started. Yeah. i never even thought
1: about
0: type. that. Yeah, he must have done it that way.
1: Yeah, those Hyboria yeah. stories, yeah.
0: Oh, my God, that would have been so much work, just for a for Yeah, fan it was th- a huge amount of work. And the first oh, time
2: that H.P. Yeah. Lovecraft was published, he was published that way. That's right. Yeah. And Robert E. Howard, when he was first published, yep. he was published that way.
0: Yeah. Yep. Those are Those, by the way, are worth some big money, those old fanzines. If you, if you can get and, uh,
2: and they are worth it too uh, uh, yeah some of them are yeah. a masterpiece they're beautiful no nobody the today contributor fact oh, uh, you, <laughs>
0: fi- you find who was working on them it was basically everybody who had a name back then
2: exactly
0: amazing.
2: exactly a lot of the stories that HP Lovecraft got famous for were first published in in fanzine and then reprinted in Weird Tales magazine.
0: Yeah, he he yeah. actually reminds me of, you know, he's like a he's a, he was an amateur first. He 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 really cared more about the community and working on his stuff and and thinking about he's more like a blogger today than he is like a, a you know, sort of 1950s writer, you know, sending off manuscripts in the mail. The only guy who ever bought anything from him was the the editor of Weird Tales, Farnsworth, right? And That's and right. then and yeah. and then I think he sold something to Amazing then he was dead. But if if, if Farnsworth Wright didn't want you know
2: he had he, he had one it, he in just, astounding tales. He, he had one in astounding story, right. The Colour from Out of Space.
0: Yeah. Uh I think I but think he, I'm, didn't, I'm,
2: he didn't he didn't go to any effort to get those publications, his friends said, yeah. oh, hey, you better publish this fan.
0: Yeah. He's a amazing figure and a great yeah. writer. We're doing a...
2: He, uh, he invented Oscar. a whole category of horror stories. That is Absolutely. Uh, extraterrestrial monsters. Absolutely. Before that, we had werewolves. We had ghosts. We had right, supernatural. They were all earthbound. He's but uh, Lovecraft before. introduced the monster from outer space to the world. And such <laughs> an influence.
0: Such or from another old
2: genre, genre invented.
1: Yeah. From Since
2: the Poland, there's not been such an innovator. It's
0: true.
1: Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. You know, I, I have a, a biography, I think L. Sprague de Camp wrote of. Um, huh? of Lovecraft and of all the imagery. Yeah. And in it, there's some pictures of him and I don't know if you guys know this, but his mother always wanted a girl and Mm -hmm. she dressed (laughs) him as a girl until he was like six or seven years old. And there's a picture of him in there with long hair and a dress on. And (laughs) it is the scariest picture I associate (laughs) with H.P. Lovecraft. (laughs) I
0: think that's the picture we should put on the H.P. Lovecraft page showing
2: but the well, his father was an occultist. Lovecraft's father was an occultist, and he flipped his lid. At the end of his life, he was in a loony bin. So that ran in the weirdness ran in the family there. Yeah, definitely.
1: Yes, so Ray, I have one more question, uh, and since we're ostensibly supposed to be talking about eight o'clock in the morning here, right? Um, uh, in the story which i liked which i certainly like better than carpenter's adaptation um i like
0: carpenter's adaptation and i like the story i think they're both I, really good
1: i do too uh, but i prefer the story for a specific reason and that's because of the fascinators you you made yeah this, that's a great word you made this a natural thing like snakes looking at their prey or you know mm-hmm. crocodiles that sort of thing and the fact that that was taken out of the movie and turned into a technological thing as opposed to a a, a natural thing built into that species, um, I was just wondering what your reaction was. I mean, you know, how integral do you believe that to be to the story?
2: Well, I have to take some responsibility for the Carpenter version because that was done in collaboration with me. Okay, oh. That... It's uh, Frank Armitage is the name yeah.
0: of it. And yeah, and no Frank such Armitage person. J- uh, is a that's name. A, that's up, a fictional up, up.
2: character. It's a collective pen name. Me and Carpenter, Carpenter's girlfriend, and Roddy the wrestler. And the right. only person who actually wrote down actual words was me. So if huh. there's something out of kilter with the movie, I have to take the blame.
1: I'm not, I'm not blaming anybody. I'm just saying it went, I understand that the mechanism for visual purposes required that they have something, you put the glasses on, you take the glasses off, that kind of thing. And and that and that was used to an incredibly good extent in that scene. You know, this is your God and and all that sort of stuff. But, Mm -hmm. um, but I, I just, when I sat down to do the story and I realized that it was not about a, a technique, you know, an object like glasses, it was built into that creature like a snake can, can hypnotize their mm-hmm. prey. Um, it gave it a whole nother dimension for me. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I just wondered, you know, I well, the glasses
2: how. are in there so that we can have something visual. Yeah. Right. When it turns into a movie, we have to be able to show we instead of tell, right. And, and that is where the other glasses come from. They're actually, the idea from those glasses comes from uh, what is called the Venetian blinds glasses that are uh, for sale in Venice as a tourist attraction. They're uh, uh, not glasses, but they're sort of like a Venetian blind that you put on. And that was where we got the idea for like that louvers? particular gimmick.
1: Well, it works really well. I mean, I'm I'm not trying to criticize the 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 technique. I just that is well, just something. Well, we did that a lot me.
2: of head scratching. How are we going to show this rather than tell? Because in in writing something in prose, you can uh, say a few words, and the audience is going to fill in the blanks. But in a movie, you got to have it there on the screen.
0: Yeah, you you get into the guy's head in the story, and it's it's done through you know the exposing of. Uh, of his mental landscape in the story. And, you know, he, he, we only hear what we need to about what's going on in his mind, but it is, it it was done through hypnosis. You can't do it. You can't show somebody really waking up very easily on screen. What you need to be able to do is I think, I think that's why I think it's such a great adaptation. And there aren't that many great stories that get adapted Mm -hmm. to film. Uh, that are short stories I can't think of a lot I, I think you know uh, of the Philip K. Dick movies uh, none of them are really that great an adaptation I think Blade Runner is a good movie but it's it's not really what the novel was it kind of takes a couple aspects but that's not right well
2: that that happened with the I, I, I've been told that Phil is the most movieized of all writers
0: what is that? what that? Can, maybe that's true that's Certainly, science fiction. I would say.
1: I think he's, he's the, the most optioned. Yeah. yeah. No, I believe he's um, the most optioned.
0: He's got like eight or nine movies out there, I think. But yeah. Well,
2: there are very few people, even among the classics, who have eight or nine movies. That's
0: true. I mean, yep. you'll, you'll yep. get, um, you'll get repeats of the Time Machine or something, but that's mm-hmm. that's uh, they don't count thing, if they're just again, and again. Yeah. It's, right. It's, it's, it's Bill's
2: cool. movies are all from separate stories. There's no redos in that series that I know of.
0: Well, they're they're just about to redo total recall for some reason. I don't I don't know what the reason is, but I guess money <laughs> money is the reason. But
2: uh, well, yeah, yeah,
0: I'm a big and fan of
2: Schwarzenegger. John... owes a lot to Phil.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. But, but i a big fan makes Carpenter. Schwarzenegger a hero.
0: I I like I like John Carpenter's movies when he did the thing. I mm-hmm. I think that that's a, an, a big improvement over the – the uh, it, it's a cosmic horror story, you know. It's Not a big true. improvement over the original short story. It's also an, a big improvement over the original movie version.
1: Now, wait a minute. Are you saying there, you don't like Marshall Dillon as the monster? I don't.
0: <laughs> I, I don't I, – I think that's one of the worst uh, <laughs> movies I've ever seen.
2: He's too humanoid. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. That was
2: John W Campbell wrote the original on that story. Yeah,
1: who goes there?
2: Who he's, goes he's, there? That's an yeah. adaptation of John W Campbell's story. That's
1: right. Yep.
0: And, and uh it. I love the music too. I I you know, I'm not a big fan of, of just sitting down and listening to music, but I I love what John Car, Car uh John Carpenter does in his script, his films is he sets the tone using m- music made specifically for that movie.
2: Mhm he and, writes the music himself it's great and often plays it in in uh, in they live uh, there's just him and overdubbing
0: and yeah. and you know i think when it, was it uh, greg you said this, the the cipher he's the the character is a cipher was that ray you saying that in the story the character is uh, you know an every
1: cuz his name is nada
0: right right uh, but also, I think that that's, we get that in the movie as well. Uh, I know that Roddy Piper doesn't look like an everyman. Right? <laughs> He's got the muscles coming out of every pore. Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: I was the, told that Roddy speak. was stupid, that he'd, he had made an, uh, some kind of a movie that was a huge flop and a laughable, awful movie. And so people said, you better write just action scenes for Roddy, because he can't handle the dramatic part. But boy, were they wrong. Roddy was a smart person. And he was, in in a sense, he was a smarter person than me. Because he managed to get a wrestling scene into that movie by threatening to walk off the set.
1: And it goes think, on for five minutes.
0: I think it's a fantastic scene because you've got what, a, what a, you've got a character who is not very good at persuading people. Uh, and you've got another guy who is justifiably sick. This guy's insane. And I'm not going to do what that insane guy says. Right. <laughs> you that same. I think it's very well paralleled by the story we've got in the story. He goes to the girlfriend and says, hey, you. Uh, wake up, and she won't wake up, and he can't figure yeah. out a way to wake her up, right?
2: So he ties her up.
0: And, and that same scene happens in the movie, except it's not a girlfriend as much as it's the... I mean, it sort of happens twice, I guess. There's the, there is the yeah. actual...
2: In it. my script, in yeah. my script, that scene is blank pages. That was Roddy and three or four cameramen and the other guy going out in the alley behind the studio and shooting off the cop. And then editing it into a uh, reasonably logical sequence, but uh, sharp-eyed fans have noticed that not farther, not much farther along in the story, we see these same guys who were all covered with bruises and uh, and scars uh, are are okay <laughs>
0: yeah, They're, they're yeah. healed up a little bit. It's been it's been a couple of days. Um, b- uh, by the way, you know Keith David uh also super fantastic actor I, I love his work he he's he's also you know one of these actors who that's the the guy roddy beats up in the right. that scene or i guess they both beat each other up but um keith david was in uh the thing as well but he's mm. also been in one of the finest uh audio dramas i've ever heard one of the seeing ear theaters um uh in which he plays a vampire hunter and oh he's oh fantastic God. in it. Great. Uh, I'll I'll see if I can get you a copy of that as well cuz it's it's absolutely fantastic.
2: I can see I've got some fun ahead of me.
0: Yeah. It's it's really good. Actually that's uh, that's in a uh, I think it's um the crypt what's that crypt keeper series? Tales from the Crypt. Yeah. I think one of those.
1: Oh yeah, that was a
0: comic audio book. drama.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, an EC comic. Show. Yeah.
0: Mhm. Yeah. Um and and Keith David's character in the movie uh, mm-hmm. has the same name as uh, your pseudonym for the script, Frank Armitage. Yep. Yeah. And and Frank Armitage, uh, I guess I, I tried to mention it earlier. I don't know if you guys heard, but that that's a name from an H. P. Lovecraft story. So it all ties together. That's right.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it's an homage, say. Great. It's great. Good.
0: It's great. It's uh, I, I I in a way I think um uh you know your your Eight o'clock in the morning is a kind of Lovecraftian tale. It's it's sort of your own spin on what, you know, they, they they were on the earth for a long time and they've taken over um and they're That's hiding it. and nobody knows about them except for me and this manuscript that says it feels that way to me anyways.
2: Most or, of the or, time Lovecraft's monsters are only threatening to take over, and my monsters actually did.
0: They yeah, they, they they did a long Good time point. ago.
1: Good point. <laughs>
2: I doubt if I would have written the same thing if there
1: hadn't been an H.P. Lovecraft.
2: He was the guy who invented the extraterrestrial monster.
1: Yeah, I can still remember the first time I read The Lurking Fear, and I was like, you know, I don't know, 10 years old and in bed at night, and I stupidly read it in bed and got to the end and was like, (laughs) they did what?! They
0: did what?
1: <laughs> oh, man. <laughs>
0: I don't know that one, so don't
1: spoil it for me. Okay, okay, I won't. But, but as a 10-year-old, it just was like, I just never even conceived that. <laughs> it, I mean, I know it was physically possible. <laughs> but anyway, um, Ray, it's been yeah. great talking to you. Um, great and if, talking to you. And if you, if you like what you hear on the recording, I would be happy to turn anything you want into an audio book. Um, and if not, that's fine too. It was just, How about everything. everything. Well, <laughs> um, anything, yeah, anything everything. includes everything. So, uh, okay,
2: that sounds good to me.
0: This has been the SFF Audio podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.